You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We're going to begin by reading the article. Again, it's entitled, Of the Word or Son of God, Which is Made Very Man. The Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, of her substance, so that two whole perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried, to reconcile his Father to us, and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but for the actual sins of men. So just like in Article 1, that's a bit of a mouthful, and it's a whole lot like the creed that we say every Sunday, and it's a whole lot like both creeds, Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creeds. Again, we said last week how they had no problem using the philosophical terminology or milieu of their time when talking about the faith because the Christian faith from the beginning has been translatable. You all probably know that Islam is a missionary faith, but Islam is not translatable in the sense of the Quran to be read or write has to be read in Arabic. Christianity from the very beginning probably was spoken mostly in Aramaic, but it's first written in the scriptures primarily in Greek, some Aramaic as well, but primarily in Greek. And with the whole, there is no longer any Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, the whole idea of everyone is level in Christ, regardless of your race or whatever. That, that has been there from the beginning. And so what that has involved is that we can translate it into the cultures that we're being missionaries to, including our own. So at this time, they were, they really drew upon the Greek philosophical milieu terms because they saw that what the, the prophets were emphasizing, especially Isaiah, is that God is without rival. There is only one God. Before that, you might get confused, right? It's have no other gods but me. Like, okay, well, henotheism, God is the greatest of all gods. But Isaiah and the prophets make clear monotheism. God is without rival. And not only that, but God is other. There's a created realm, and it's not just you and me. It's all that we know. But God is uncreated. God is transcendent. But God in his transcendent becomes imminent through his son. So the son is the word of the father. So the word of the father is the logos or he's one in being with God. So the son before he's made incarnate is one in being with God. All those things we talked about, the otherness of God, the word was that. He's eternally begotten from the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father. Um, again, that's kind of a metaphor, right? He, uh, what does it mean to say that he's the Son of God? Well, he's begotten of the Father, but we don't believe that that begins in time. Again, created things experience time. God, the other, is outside of time. 
He is the very and eternal God of one substance with the Father. But the Word took on flesh, took on man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance. So, what is this saying? The Word, in becoming incarnate, who was of the same substance of the Father, takes on the substance of the woman, of the Blessed Virgin, of humanities, of humanity. So that the two whole perfect natures, he is holy God. He becomes wholly human. That's why it's saying the two whole and perfect natures. That is to say, the Godhead and manhood, or humankind, whatever you want to say, they were joined together in one person. So Jesus is fully human, fully divine. He's not mostly divine, somewhat human. Fully divine, fully human. And then this gets to debates in the early church, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ. Now, some folks in the early church, and this would, last year I had a tr uh, class on the cruelty of heresy. Some were like, all right, well, Jesus has a divine mind, but a human body. And when the early church fathers and mothers thought about this, they were like, well, that doesn't really work as much as we, you know, hey, that person probably meant well. But if you remember from last year, which a lot of you probably weren't there, the great saying of Irenaeus, that which he do, did not assume, he cannot heal. Does that make sense? So then there would be an aspect of our humanity that he did not heal. That which he did not assume, he did not heal. And that is to emphasize this fully God. He fully takes on man's nature, undivided. There's not, he has a divine heart, but a human everything else. Fully takes on flesh. He fully takes on the virgin's substance, even as he maintains the divine substance. When you think about this, it's truly a mystery. It's, it's kind of one of these things you have to stand in awe of. Uh, we're not going to be able to explain the mechanics of it. But in the mystery of the God-man, of the Word made flesh, we say this without thinking about it, but it really is kind of mind-boggling. Fully God, fully human, fully other, fully, again, as we said last week, is not, we don't have to worry about the Son of God changing his mind about essentially his work for us because God is changeless. God is immutable. Uh, God is without passion. And yet, in his humanity, he suffers, right? I thirst. He's, he, think of him in the, in the garden. Uh, there's a great mystery here. It's the mystery of the incarnation. Uh, this is what we celebrate at Christmas every year. <coughs> Less so cute donkeys, whatever. I mean, I love the cute stuff. But really what we're pointing to is that the God who is other to reconcile us, as we'll see in a second, becomes one of us, assumes all of us. And because he's assumed all of us, he's healed every part of us.
I got a little ahead of myself, but let's get there. Um, again, emphasizing very God, very man. He truly suffered. Now, these folks who who take their creed seriously, who also kind of live in that Greco, uh, the Greek uh, philosophical milieu, what they're saying is he truly suffered in his humanity while in his otherness he doesn't suffer because if God and God's godness and Jesus and God's godness uh, could suffer, then maybe he'd change. Does that make sense? That's something that we moderns have trouble wrapping our minds around. But in his humanity, he suffered, he's crucified, dead, and buried. And why does he do this in his Godhead and manhood? To reconcile us to his Father. To be a sacrifice, not just for original guilt, but for actual sins. Original guilt, not just for the sin that we inherit from our ancestors, from the sin of Adam, but for our actual sins. So you see, what they're trying to do here with all of this abstraction, all of this, they're trying to, again, what I said last week, uphold that God is fully other, that he is transcendent, and yet in Jesus becomes one of us, is imminent. And again, what I said last week, the reason there are such pains in these first two articles to uphold the transcendence of God or the otherness of God is that if Tommy were to die for all of us, a death like Jesus's, it might be an inspiring example. It might be something that gets us to take up arms like in Braveheart and fight for Scotland or something like that. But Tommy's death would not be efficacious for us other than providing us with an example. What they're at pains to say here is that because the Word, because Jesus is fully God and remains so in his humanity, his death is not merely inspiring or an example, but it effected something. What did it affect? It was a sacrifice for original guilt, original sin, for actual sins of humans. It reconciles us. Tommy dying for us does not reconcile us to God, but because he is fully God, fully human, that which he has assumed, he has healed. And that's every aspect of ourselves. So I don't open the floor for either comments or questions or just, or pushback, just anything at all. Uh, I think any kind of discussion, I think we'll get our minds thinking about other things. Go ahead, Tommy. Like you were saying in the beginning, um, when you're talking about the Son and the Father and, you know, in, in space and time, where we are, to be a Son, by definition, means that you, you come after the Father. The Father exists and then, and then the Son yeah. comes later. Um, and, you know, some people say, and I don't, I, don't believe, I don't believe this, but they say, you know, this anthropomorphic term, these anthropomorphic terms are used to help us wrap our mind around what it means, the Father and the Son, how they're together and, you know, begotten from everlasting. That, that implies that, you know, Jesus was always there. He never was not there. He, he didn't, in worldly terms, come after the Father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's why. That's, a, that's great, Tommy. Because if, if you notice in our creed, we say 
a very weird thing, right? We say eternally begotten of the Father. Now, if you think about what these terms mean, and I'm sorry if this sounds crude, but this is literally what the assemblers of the creed were doing. When they say that the Son is begotten of the Father, they are saying that is, I mean, it's the reproductive kind of system. The Father is through what he's got, the Son comes about. It is a metaphor, but it's more than a metaphor. What they're trying to say here is, so my father and mother begot me. That was in time, and I, as you said, come after. But there's this notion, and again, think in terms of contemporary physics, just how like time works, um, which, or, or does it work. Uh, we're saying he, there, he's eternally begotten. In time, it's, it's always been happening and always happening. Um, so again, it's one of those things that you, it's hard to really wrap your mind around, but it helps us understand why in the scriptures so often uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Jesus Christ as well. It can kind of become this mind thing. It, it, it's a little crazy. Um, it's not actually crazy. I'm not, it sounds crazy. Um, that, I mean, the idea is that that the son is eternally the whole the whole concept of God as the Father and God as the Son and you know entered also the Holy Spirit. But that as that is part of the eternal plan. Mm-hmm. That you know the notion of the love that is expressed in Christ as Son, eternally begotten is an expression of, of God as it forever. You know, it was in the plan. For, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. For, for so if God life. is other, if God is um, omnipresent, omni, oh, I'm forgetting the terms, uh, omni-knowing, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, um, yes, we're, we're saying again that he doesn't have passions. He doesn't, and what they mean by that is not that God isn't passionately for us, but but God is not going to change God's mind. God has set God's mind being for us. Now, a great question you might be having is, well, what about the problem of evil? How does that square with and the theologians have banged their head against that for a long time, and some answers are kind of. I mean, I wouldn't even say answers. Some approaches are better than others, but um, ultimately, that too is a mystery. Why, you know, and that's why Augustine, if you read Augustine, he kind of talks about sin as the nothingness, um, which, you know, sometimes we have a problem with because we're, we're like, well, it feels very like something. Um, but, and again, they're talking in philosophical negatives here. But it's really to try to understand what the mystery of God, again, the via negativa that we talked about yesterday, uh, this knowing God by what God isn't. uh, What the early Christians are trying to do is show us how it can be that the God who is other became one of us. Islam, to Islam, that's a huge offense. Right? Uh, it doesn't mean 
some a lot of like Islamic theologians don't get along with Christian theologians, but it doesn't really doesn't make sense that the other could become one of us. The Trinity doesn't make sense to them. They have a place for Jesus, but they don't have a place for Jesus as one in being with the Father. But Christians from the beginning have said there is a great mystery here. We cannot wrap our minds around this, but this is their way in the creeds, in the early church fathers and mothers, of trying to wrap our heads <laughs> around why the earliest Christians worshipped Jesus. From the earliest we have, I mean, you see it in Paul, right? But we, we have it elsewhere, too. Jews, Jewish Christians, worshipped Jesus. Why? Right? Because you would think that might be blasphemous. But what they came to realize through his death and resurrection, and what he hinted at at times, because he only says it explicitly a few times, uh, is that this Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. Next time you read Hebrews, look at the language. The language is not all that different than what we have here. Um, those who say there's no Greek thought in the scriptures, I mean, read Hebrews. Read John uh, one at a time. Go ahead, Steve. I have a problem kind of getting through and figuring where With that, that meaning of perfect, that uh, perfect has a range of meanings. That's not saying we are perfect. That perfect is emphasis. It's it's a uh, it's expanding upon the whole. Uh, he, he, he's truly one of us. Does that make sense? He's not saying that we're perfect. Um, Can we say he's perfected? <coughs> I mean, he will, but what this is talking about is, and well, let's go, if you have it in front of you, because yeah, I mean, this, there's a lot packed into one paragraph. So he is the very and eternal God, one substance with the Father, takes on man's nature, he takes on her nature, humanities, fully God, fully human, takes on our nature, uh, sorry, so that the two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person. Whole and perfect is really saying, no really. Godhead, it's like, it's not 50%, yeah, essentially. Um, it's not 50% man, 50% God, fully God, fully man. And, and the reason why they're at pains for this is they don't want to refight the wars of the ancient church where we're trying to figure out who is this Jesus who we're worshiping? Who is, and we'll get to it later, I don't want to forget the neglected member of the Trinity, but who is this spirit? How, why has the spirit of God that's talked about in the Old Testament been personified um, by Jesus and others? So really, what they're trying to do, if you, if, you have, if you have no time for this kind of cerebral thing, if you have no time for, hey man, I just, I really need like, Jesus to have died for my sins, understand like what they're trying to do here. Uh, just like, you know, we appreciate what the rocket scientists are doing, even though we don't fully understand it. We can't say, well, throw out the rocket science. Uh, 
what they're trying to do is uphold the great evangelical truth that you and I have been reconciled. How? Because God took on humanity. God lived the life we were supposed to in our place and on our behalf. And the reason why it's efficacious for you and for me is because God does it. He fully takes on humanity. And that is the mystery of this one man being able to be do something that's efficacious for all of us. Uh, Maybe we weren't supposed to know. If we were supposed to know, he would have just told us. Well, I mean, that's great, Chris. And we do need to emphasize the mystery. It's hard enough understanding everything in the Bible. Yeah. To try and understand the Trinity is yeah. darn near important. And there will always be a mystery. By faith, you can understand the Trinity, but yes. not with logic. I think, it's I think you can. Though. I think it's important, though. I'm not saying it's not important. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I'm Okay. I think it's important though to know the uh, to know this because even now I think we battle heresy in our church mm-hmm. and to know when we hear the message that's wrong to know when the preachers are you know doing Jesus was a good man kind of stuff like the, the ancient church yeah, and these things wrong. pop up all the time like, yeah. look at Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses look at and I'm not I'm not trying to say I mean I've had Jehovah's Witnesses who are friends I'm not yeah the last thing I want us to do is to restart religious wars or anything like that. Um, but but what they're trying to do is the vast majority of us don't need to wrap our minds around this stuff. But I don't know about you, but for me, it's been really helpful in my life to know that there are Christians who are smarter than me out there. I mean, I think for a lot of people, that's C.S. Lewis, right? He he kind of thinks for us in some level. on some level. Uh, for me, I mean, Rowan Williams is... A genius. He's a archbishop or former archbishop of Canterbury, and on on my worst days, or I'm like, well, if Rowan knows that this all makes sense, I can lean in on that. So again, like that, the analogy being, we don't have to know the rocket science, but I think we do need to be humble. Those of us who are like, well, I don't understand this, blah blah blah, is uh, because we we need the rocket science. Those of us who aren't going to wrap our minds around this, we, we need to be grateful for those who have uh, because they're showing us that this, crudely put, works. Does that make sense? I think that's important. But I don't think we, you have to know it all. We're all called to be disciples. And so when asked a question, we need to be able to answer it in truth to the best of our knowledge. So if you don't know anything about the Trinity or don't... You can't just say, oh, it's because. Yeah. you got to try to come up with an answer or just admit, I'm not qualified to answer that. But in, in some way, we're supposed to know what's going on. Or, and just have an antennae for, and the last thing I want is for you to leave this class and become theology policemen. Uh, it's the last thing we need is to like be like, oh, the Baptists, I'm not so sure, or the Methodists, whatever. I mean... The, the beauty is that this does show us that all of our interdenominational fighting, like if, if the assemblers of the 39 articles put these two first, the Trinity and the Incarnation, that means that people, we might disagree about important matters like they did, justification by faith. It means that you and I should be very hesitant to say Catholics aren't Christians or another 
Christian body, they're not. Um, it's, and that's not to say, I mean, as I preached, uh, justification by faith is the bomb of Gilead. Uh, for those who have a, an understanding that might be a little bit different, let's keep the first things first. And, and not just so that we can be united in faith around the creed and the scriptures, but also so that when we have questions, there's going to be questions that pop up. Uh, there's going to be people on TikTok or whatever be like, this is why Christianity is stupid, blah, blah, blah. And almost always, it's a straw man has been built to tear down. Uh, that's, why, that's why we need some of this stuff. Again, do you have to have it in your head all the time or know it perfectly? No. I rely on people like <laughs> Rowan Williams. A lot of us rely on people like C.S. Lewis. You fill in the gap for your person. Um, when Mikey said in the sermon the, um, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, um, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily fully rest on them, of course. You know, it's, it's, Jesus is the only one who, who knows the mystery. You know, I mean, we don't, nobody in this world um, can explain it. I know it's just being rhetorical there. The, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is that because of what Jesus has done, God's going to hold on to us. So what I was saying by the, I don't care about that. I care about the perseverance of God's Jesus. love. Yeah. Because Essentially, those are doing the same thing. But I do like the emphasis being the perseverance of God's work uh, versus, even though this is not what they mean by that sentence, the perseverance of the saints. So... Uh, Anybody, anybody else? Anything? And you're allowed to be kind of, you know, do we really need this or not? But if you are, just what I'm trying to do in this class is to show that there are centuries of human or Christian history that has tried to wrap their mind around why do we worship the man Jesus? Because that, I mean, that's what we're doing at church. If we don't, if we shouldn't be, then we had better change things dramatically. If we shouldn't be, we're kind of making Jesus into an idol, right? But what the creeds are doing, what these first two articles are doing, is to show us the reason the earliest Christians worshipped Jesus is because he is one in being with the Father. We know he's human. But then you'll find that other heresies started to say, oh, no, he, he wasn't actually human. He was a phantom. Uh, he was like a ghost. Uh, he was fully God. But, but then again, we get to that same problem. Well, if, if he didn't actually become one of us, how did he heal us? How did he reconcile us? If it's, if it's fake, he just is a ghost. You see, they're, they're really thinking through this. And I'm just scratching the surface. Uh, Fitzsimmons Allison, who used to come here a lot, uh, Bishop, he, I, think he, I think he might have just died, or he's like Fran Cade's uh, uncle, if you guys know. Um, he wrote a great book called The Cruelty of Heresy. And he gets, he gets if, you, if you don't like this, he gets more into in the weeds than anyone. But he writes about it in a way where he really connects it to lived reality. Why are these seemingly abstract terms and otherwise really actually do connect with our greatest hopes, wishes, fears, etc. So. And like the lived reality, they're, they're 
I got to go right after this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are like little parts of it that, that we experience also in this. I mean, in the sense that we also have an unnatural birth, you know. Um, we're, we're, we're also God's child. Um, you know, we, we have to go through. He's the firstborn of creation, firstborn of the dead. We're, we're following in his footsteps. And in the same way that he enters in, in a sense, perfect humanity, I mean, and what God said was very good, and undoes it, and is the per- the perfect man, the perfect Adam. Um, we we enter in, we suffer, you know, we're dead, uh, and then we're reconciled, we're un- undivided, we're, where we can't be separated from God. Um, there's, there's something in it, you know, that's directly related to humanity and what we there is there's a we are like God and Jesus and yet God Trinity God Father Son Holy Spirit God and Jesus is also still other and that is part of the mystery of a human at the right hand of God and I'm going to leave it to Ascension Day for someone to unpack that great mystery so thank you for coming Got one more sermon to preach. Um, but this has been really fun. Yeah. And listen to Jono uh, after this, because Jono is he's so great. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.